Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. So, um, with this whole COVID thing and everything, right before I got here, the song that came up on my playlist was that Phil Collins song, I don't care anymore. <laughs> and so, it's just one of those things, I don't care anymore. <laughs> so, anyway. Well, tonight we're talking about gentleness and self-control. We're going to get to the last two um, of the aspects of the fruit of the Spirit. But before we do that, let's pray And then we'll dive right into the Word of God. Father, thank you for this time together. Lord, I'm thankful that we're here. We live in a crazy time with um, COVID and elections and um, all the things that we we worry about, that we see in our world. And it's good just to come into your house tonight, uh, to be among your people and to look at your Word and just find comfort in your Word. So speak to us tonight. Give us encouragement. Challenge us where we need to repent. And Lord, we're thankful for the fruit of the Spirit, Holy Spirit, that you do produce in our lives. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So let's go to Ma- uh, ja- Let us go to Galatians chapter 5. And let's just read the entire list because we're going to finish it tonight. And by the way, next Wednesday night, there's no, win- there's no activities next Wednesday night. It's the Wednesday night before Thanksgiving, and we usually, school's canceled, and we usually cancel. Wednesday night activities. So, Galatians 5, starting in verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. The last two are gentleness and self-control. And what we've done pretty much every week when we've looked at these aspects or we looked at these attributes, we always go back to how God himself demonstrated these characteristics, especially back in the Old Testament. So when you think about gentleness, that's not a characteristic you often think about God the Father, gentleness. But there are a few passages, come on, clicker, oh, there we go. Is it going to be slow tonight? There we go. There are a few passages in the Old Testament that talk about the gentleness of of Yahweh, of the Lord. Uh, One of those is Isaiah 40, verse 11, speaking of the Lord. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. So sometimes in the Old Testament, God the Father, Yahweh the Lord, is pictured as this shepherd that picks up the sheep, the Israelites, and he carries the sheep gently. Uh, Psalm 103, 13, and 14. Come on now. This may not work. Um, Do you want to do it, Tarina? Okay. It really helps me not to have to be the clicker monster here So Psalm 103, 13, and 14. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. The father is a compassionate, gentle God. Now there's one portion of the Old Testament 
where we see God's gentleness to a woman named Hagar in Genesis 16. So turn to Genesis 16. And do you remember the story of Hagar? What had God promised Abraham and Sarah in their old age? They would have a child, and from that child would come a multitude of nations. And they're getting up in years, and even though God made that promise to Abraham, he tried to speed things along a little bit with his Egyptian servant girl, Hagar. And Sarah does not treat her very well. This, this Genesis chapter 16 does not show Sarah in a very good light. Um, Sarah kind of basically, I don't want to use the word, per- persecutes her, but mistreats her so much so that um, Hagar has to flee to get out of there. So let's pick up in Genesis 16, starting in verse 1. And this is before Sarah's name's changed to, her name Sarai here. But Now, Sarai, Abraham's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abraham listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abraham had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abraham's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarah said to Abraham, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. Okay, so it's Sarah's idea to bring in a surrogate to speed things along so Abraham will have a son. So Sarah's like, I'm not getting pregnant. Maybe this young servant girl will get pregnant. And what happens when she gets pregnant? Sarah gets mad. She gets upset. She begins to mistreat Hagar. And, and, and Abraham's not very good here. He's kind of a passive husband. He says, okay, Sarah, do whatever you will with Hagar. You, you ladies work it out. I'm done here, okay, like a good man. You, you ladies work it out. I want to abdicate my responsibility. I just got her pregnant. You deal with the other stuff, okay? That's pretty much what Abraham's saying. And so what does Sarah do? She mistreats Hagar, so much so that Hagar has to flee into the desert. So let's pick up in verse 7. The angel of the Lord found her, that's Hagar, by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I'm fleeing from my mistress Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, behold, you are pregnant and you shall bear a son shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all of his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord, who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly here I have seen him who looks after me. 
Therefore, the well was called Bir Laharoi. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. Okay, an angel appears to her. She's a pregnant woman. She flees into the wilderness by herself next to a well. The angel of the Lord says, go back, submit. You're going to have a great nation come from you. And she bears, it's going to be Ishmael. We know Ishmael is a wild donkey of a man. But notice what she does. This is the only time that I know of at this point, at least in Genesis, where somebody gives God a name. And what does she say in verse 13? She called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, you're a God of seeing, a God of seeing, because truly here I have seen him who looks after me. That language there of God looking after her, of God seeing her, in the Hebrew text, it often connotes gentleness, that God has gently dealt with Hagar and took care of her in the wilderness. God looked after her, which is kind of ironic. Who should have been praising the Lord for his protection? Abraham and Sarah. Who's giving praise to the Lord? A pagan Egyptian servant girl who doesn't know any better. So there's this twist of irony in this story here. But the point is, God showed gentleness to Hagar in the wilderness. So, in the Old Testament, God, the Father, the Lord, Yahweh, was gentle with his people. What about the gentleness of Jesus? The gentleness of Jesus Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 and 29, Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus says, I am gentle. Now, we can think of a lot of ways where Jesus was gentle. He was gentle with the woman at the well. Now, he spoke truth. We're going to talk about what gentleness is and what gentleness is not. With the woman at the well in John chapter 4, he was gentle, but he spoke the truth in love. But think about his trial, at the trial of Jesus. What could Jesus have done at his trial and his crucifixion? Let's go to Matthew. Again, when you guys come here on Wednesday nights, I make you do Bible drill. So just to keep you awake... Some of you that have digital Bibles on your phones can get there faster maybe than those that turn their pages. Matthew 26, 53 through 63. Let's, let's look here at how Jesus responded at his trial. Matthew's account of this. Okay, Matthew 26, 53. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father, and he will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then should the Scripture be fulfilled that it must be so? At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I sat in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. 
But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. Now, what did Jesus say there? If you guys want to fight, don't mess with my father because he can send a legion of angels down and we can deal with it right now. So Jesus could have said, angels come down and wipe these people out. But what does Jesus say? That's not God's will. That's not according to prophecy. That's not according to scripture. I've got to suffer. I've got to be mistreated. So I have authority, but I'm not going to use it because I'm going to suffer instead. So in verse 57, Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. But they found none. But many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. He remained silent. Could Jesus have retaliated? at his trial and his crucifixion? Could he have demanded his rights? Could he have fought back? Could he have wielded all the authority he had as God in the flesh? Yes. But what instead, what did he choose to do? To be gentle. To keep his mouth shut. And this was prophesied back in Isaiah 53, 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that's led to the slaughter, and like a sheep before its shears is silent, he opened not his mouth. He didn't try to talk his way out of the trial. He didn't try to appeal to his rights. He didn't yell and scream and protest. He remained silent. 1 Peter 2, 20-23. For what credit is it, is it when you sin and are beaten for it you endure but if when you do good and suffer for it you endure this is a gracious thing in the sight of God for this you've been called because Christ also suffered for you leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps he committed no sin neither was deceit found in his mouth when he was reviled he did not revile in return when he suffered he did not threaten but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly what does it mean to revile to speak ill, to slander. When Jesus was, was slandered or spoken ill of, did he, did he retaliate back? No. When he suffered, did he threaten? No. He practiced gentleness. Okay. Now, for men especially, we can kind of misunderstand gentleness for wimpiness or being a doormat or... Basically, kind of being like a jellyfish where we don't really have a backbone. That's not what gentleness means. So let's go to let's go a few few verses back. Matthew five. 
We're going to go to the Beatitudes. I know on Sunday mornings we're going through the Beatitudes. We started the Beatitudes last week in Luke. Luke only has four Beatitudes because I think, remember what I said a few weeks ago? I think Luke's sermon is a different sermon at a different time and place than Matthew chapter 5, but it's the same material. Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount, has a little bit more Beatitudes in it. So in Matthew 5, 5, Jesus says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Meek. When was the last time you heard, man, that, person ha- that person's meek? When, when did you ever hear? That, they say it of a politician, a movie star, an athlete, he or she's meek. Is that a word we even use in our culture? Meek? Meek and mild? Okay. Meekness is not being a doormat where you just let people walk all over you. It's not weakness. So let's be very clear. Meekness is not weakness or being wishy-washy or being timid or not having a backbone. It's not like a personality trait like you're nice. The Greek word for meekness or gentleness was often used of a domesticated animal like a horse who was powerful but submissive. Here's what gentleness is. It's power under restraint. It's strength that's under control. Think about the power of a horse. Some of you may have been kicked by a horse, (laughs) dragged by a horse. There's a lot of energy and power behind a horse. But what does a trained horse do who's been broken? It's submissive. It's restrained because it knows how to obey its master. So gentleness means you exercise restraint, especially in the face of opposition. In times of testing or when someone provokes you or gets in your face or tries your patience, you willingly make the decision to remain submissive, under control, gentle, and restrained. So it's not weakness, it's not jellyfish, it's not being a doormat. It is, I'm strong, but I'm going to remain under control in the face of adversity and not lash out. I'm going to be gentle. Now, there's two directions of gentleness, two directions of meekness. One direction is being meek toward God. How, do you, how are you meek towards God? Being meek towards God means that you submit to his will in the face of adversity and trials knowing that he's in control. You don't fight God. You don't complain against God. You're content with what he allows or ordains to happen. In other words, when you have a gentle spirit towards God, you're not always fighting with God or questioning God or arguing with God or or you're not always like trying to um, get mad at God for things that happen. You're basically saying, I'm going to submit myself to your will, God, and receive what you have for me and be content with what you're ordaining in my life. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, 7, For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? 
What do you have that you did not receive? And that's ultimately from God. What do you have that you haven't? What do you have that you did not receive as a gift from God? Everything you have, your life, your talents, your abilities, your trials, your tribulations, everything comes from God. John 3.27, John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it's given to him from heaven. So a gentle spirit towards God is... No matter what happens in my life, I know God's in control. God's allowing it to happen. It's happening for a purpose under God's sovereignty. And instead of fighting that, I'm going to submit to that. Now, does that mean we always have to understand it? No. (laughs) There are some things that happen to us that we don't often understand, why they're happening to us. So let me just ask you a theological question. (laughs) I don't want to go on a tangent on this, but can anything happen to you that that God doesn't ordain or allow to happen to you? So if it's happening to you, who's in charge of it happening to you? God. And if God's in charge of it happening to you, it must be his will for it to happen for you. So you have one of two choices. You can fight against that and say, God, I don't like that. I don't like your will. Or you can say, God, I don't understand it, but I'm going to submit to your will. Now, number one, you're in a losing battle. (laughs) And number two, it's a frustrating place. Let's just admit it. Even though we don't understand God's plans and purposes, a gentle spirit says, I'm going to submit to God even though I don't have all the answers I don't understand. I don't really know why this is happening. I'm going to submit myself to God. And one day, maybe I'll get the answers when I get to heaven. So there's there's a gentleness towards submitting to God. Now, Let's talk about gentleness to others. What does it mean to be gentle towards others? I think there's four specific ways we can be gentle towards others. Okay, here's, first, here's the first one. We can be meek or gentle in how we respond to insults and injury from other people. Are people going to be rude to you? Are people going to disrespect you? Are people that you work with going to verbally assault you? Okay. Now, what is gentleness? It's power under restraint. Proverbs 19.11. Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is a glory to overlook an offense. Okay, let's be real careful here. Because there's a fine line. Gentleness is not being weak. It's not being a doormat. It's not um, excusing people's behavior or empowering or enabling bad behavior. What it is, is in that moment, you're choosing by the power of the Holy Spirit to not act in anger or retaliation or in revenge, I guess, when somebody insults you. What's our natural reaction when somebody gets in our face? To get back. To get right back at them. To retaliate. Um, what happens when you get offended or somebody violates your rights? What's our, I mean, I'm not saying here, guys, that you should never fight for your rights or you should never address issues. Okay. Can you address an insult 
with gentleness. I'm not saying don't address the insult. Yeah, if somebody gets in your face and starts talking smack to you, I mean, you can punch them out. That's one. Or you can just step back and say, I receive what you're saying, but you're absolutely wrong, and here's why. Under control, give you the facts. I'm gently going to deal with it. That, that's where you really need the Holy Spirit, because what's your first instinct? When I'm insulted, my first instinct is to, there's, there's two ways you can do it, fight or flight. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, because some of us like to fight. Yeah, some of us like to fight. All right, Troy's raising his hand. Some of us like to fight, and some of us like, I don't want this conflict, I'm flying out of here. Neither one of those are good ways to deal with conflict. Um, so anyway, that's, so, so one way to exercise gentleness is when you're reviled, when you're insulted, when you're hurt, when, when somebody hurts you, do you retaliate or do you speak the truth in love with gentleness? Okay, the second one's kind of sort of related to it. So here's another way we can practice gentleness. Secondly, we can display gentleness by not taking revenge on others who hurt us. Okay, fight or flight... There's probably a third option. I'm going to sit back and plot how I can take out revenge on them. <laughs> I'm not going to fight them right away. I'm, I'm not going to fly. I, I might fly for a little bit, but I'm going to plot revenge. Okay, Proverbs 16:32. Whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty. And he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. He who rules his spirit. What is, what's gentleness? It's power under control. You've got to rule, rein in, rein in that desire to want to take revenge. Romans 12, 19. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Okay, what's, if you want to take revenge on someone, you may be saying, now wait a minute. I need revenge and I won't sleep until I see that person hurt. Basically in that moment when you're acting like that, you're not demonstrating the fruit of the Spirit. So you don't take revenge or plot revenge or harbor bitterness in your heart. You don't retaliate third one and i think this is a hard one this is very hard and i'm not i'm not going to take this lightly we'll talk about a little bit about this third we can demonstrate gentleness by forgiving the sins of others even when we don't want to or feel like it tell you a story uh maybe about 10 11 years ago some Somebody came into my, I won't give, give the, the gender, I don't want to give away. Somebody came into my office about 10, maybe 10 years ago. And they were having a major conflict with somebody else in our church. Like a really bad conflict. And after talking a little bit and letting them vent and let off steam, I said, I understand exactly where you're coming from. I know that you've been hurt. I know you're disappointed. But biblically... You've got to forgive. And this person says, I'm not going to forgive that person. 
I don't think God's called me to forgive that person. And I said, time out. <laughs> you don't have a choice whether you are going to forgive that person because the Bible tells you to. I'm just not going to forgive. And I said, I understand where you're coming from. You may not feel like forgiving. You may not want to forgive. And it may be the hardest thing you will do. But you have to. I'm not saying it's going to be easy. I'm not saying you have to be best friends with them. But we have to forgive. Ephesians 4, 31 through 32. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Now, you may be objecting to this by saying in your heart or thinking, if I forgive this person, I'm going to lose my rights. They're going to win in the end. They're going to get away with it. I'm not going to get my way if I forgive them. That's the opposite of meekness. Why are we to forgive in the first place? Because we ourselves have been given by, we have been forgiven by Christ to live as though we are nothing because of his forgiveness. So part of gentleness is being willing to forgive. I'm not saying it's easy. I'm not saying that it won't come with pain and heartache. But the Bible is very clear that we need to be tenderhearted, gentle with one another. There's another hard one here. The fourth way we can show gentleness. We show gentleness in restoring fallen brothers or sisters. And we actually have a verse for this that explicitly teaches it. Galatians 6.1 Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Okay, let's, let's unpack this verse for a moment. Does Paul list the sin here that the person got caught in? What does he say? If anyone's caught in any transgression, caught. The word means tripped up. If somebody, a brother or sister in Christ, sins majorly, falls, commits a grievous sin, what are we to do? Restore that person. Okay. To restore that person, but to do so with gentleness. There's a proper and an improper way to restore somebody that's sinned. What's an improper way? If somebody sins in our church, what's an improper way to treat them? Attack them, gossip them about them, kick into the curb. They got what they deserved. What? Forget them. Okay, that's so one extreme of treating somebody that sinned is I'm going to ignore them, I'm going to gossip about them, I'm going to shun them, we're going to kick them to the curb. They're no longer welcome here. That's one extreme. The other extreme, which is just as bad, is okay, we're just going to let them get away with it and we're not going to address it and they sin majorly and it's no big deal and we're not going to deal with it. What does the Bible say here? Restore that person. 
Sometimes restoring a person comes through church discipline, which is a process that the entire church goes through at times to bring around that restoration. But why does Paul say it do it with gentleness? Because he says, keep watch on yourself unless you're tempted. What happens if you're the one that falls? How do you want to be treated? You and I can fall just as easily as anybody else. You guys heard about the pastor Carl Lentz? He just, he's, he's a famous megachurch pastor in New York City, pastor of Hillsong Church in New York City. Um, he's been on Oprah and The View and everything. Well, um, during COVID, when the church is shut down, um, he was no longer able to preach at, at the megachurch because it shut down in Manhattan. To fill that void of him not being able to preach to tens of thousands of people, he started having an affair with a Muslim woman who wasn't even a Christian. And they met and had this tryst, and basically it came to light when his wife found some text. And so I think it was about a week ago or two weeks ago, he was fired from his church for having an affair. And the allure was he needed something to fill the void of not preaching to people. Live stream wasn't enough. Okay, so he fell. Okay, we all sit here and shake our heads like, I can't believe he did that. Be careful in shaking your heads and saying, I can't believe he did that. Because the moment you shake your heads and say, I can't believe he did that, think about yourself. If not for the grace of God, I could, there go I. What does Paul say there? Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. So, we restore, we address sin, we don't gossip, we deal with it, and we do it with the spirit of gentleness. Doesn't mean that we don't brush it. We don't brush sin under the carpet. You deal with it, but you may have to deal with it with gentleness. Proverbs 27, 6 says this, faithful are the wounds of a friend, profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. What does that mean? If you truly have a Christian friend and you're in the wrong, you want them to come and confront you and you'll receive it because you know they're right. A spirit of gentleness means that we should not restore or do church discipline in a self-righteous or legalistic or prideful manner, but understand if it were not for the restraining grace of God, we are just as susceptible to falling into sin as the one who has fallen. I've been in two cases of church discipline, one at my former church and one at this church, where it went all the way to the church having to meet. In this church, and this is public knowledge because a lot of you were in the meeting as members, there was a person in our church who had, was on his sixth wife, and they were in the process of getting a divorce for no biblical reason, and I did marriage counseling after marriage counseling to keep them together. They met with elders. They met with their growth group leaders. Um, it was at an impasse to where we spent a year and a half trying to counsel this person who had a history of dealing with um, women in our church in ways that just weren't appropriate to where we finally brought it to the church in a meeting in this very sanctuary on a Sunday night where about 100 people showed up, this individual showed up, charges were read about what we were charging this person with, 
I never raised my voice when we did it. I tried to speak like this the whole night so that it would be done with the spirit of gentleness because I did not want to wag my finger at the guy, at the person and, and, and get all up in people's face and, and like, we're kicking this guy out with joy. I mean, I, mean, I didn't want to act like that. I, I was very, very fearful of that meeting. Now, Matthew 18 says, if the person listens to the church and is willing to repent, you've won your brother. If he doesn't listen to the church, you're to cast him out. Okay, so after all the facts were brought to the forefront, after things were said, this individual says, may I speak? You may speak. He stood up. He confessed. He said, I'm placing myself under the authority of the elders for a plan to be under their guidance, and I promise to follow the elders' leadership. Now, at that moment, what did he do? In some ways, he repented and made himself accountable to 100 people. So we stopped the process right there, and we didn't kick him out because he was willing to hold himself accountable to, to the elders and to the, the leader, to the people of the church. Okay. We prayed. It was all handled in a manner, matter of gentleness. Some churches abuse that. I remember when I first came to this church, there was a teenage girl that got pregnant. She came to Don and me. We went to her home, and in tears, she repented before Don and me and said, I have sinned. I want to fall under your leadership, and I'll do whatever it takes to walk with the Lord. I need your help. I'm confessing this. I said, that's fine. We had some women in the church that came to me and said, that girl needs to be paraded up on a Sunday morning and she needs to confess her sin to the entire church and she needs to be rebuked publicly for the sin because if you let her get away with it, think of what message it sends to all the other teenage girls that are going to get pregnant. And we met as elders and said, no, <laughs> we're not going to do that. Okay. Did she get addressed with her sin? Yes. Did she repent? Did it, was it in a spirit of gentleness? Okay. Did the person that came under church discipline, did we address the issue? Yes. Did we do it with gentleness? Yes. So you can address sin. You can do church discipline. You can confront these things and do it in a spirit of gentleness. Because what are you always aiming for? Restoration. We always want an open door for that person to come back. And that's what Paul says here in 2 Corinthians 13, 11. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Aim for restoration. Okay? Now, at this point, it may be helpful to offer some biblical examples of people who demonstrated gentleness. So these people could have retaliated, they could have gotten even, they could have demanded their rights and strutted their stuff and got all up in people's faces, but they showed gentleness, power under restraint. Let's first of all think about Joseph. What happened to Joseph? We've talked about Joseph a couple times. He was sold into slavery by his brothers. Did his brothers perpetrate a wickedness on him? Okay. Did they do an evil to him? Did it change the trajectory of his life? He got sold into slavery. He went into Potiphar's wife. 
She accused him of rape. He spent two years in prison. Actually, I think it was like another 10 years. So there was like a lot, 13 years, I think, is what he spent. Now, eventually, he became the prime minister of Egypt, and his brothers come back, and it's that moment of truth. Jacob has died. The dad has died. Jacob has died. The other brothers come. What could have Joseph done as the prime minister, second to the Pharaoh, when his brothers come back to him? Remember all those years ago when you guys left me in the cistern? What's coming? You guys are getting justice now. I'm the second dude in the Egyptian nation. Retaliation's coming. Bow down before me, and I'm bringing these guys in to cut off your heads. Is that what Joseph does? Okay, what does he say? Genesis 50, 20. As for you, brothers, he's talking to brothers. As for you, brothers, you meant evil against me. All those years ago, you meant evil against me. You perpetrated evil. Now, one thing we need to notice here. Notice what Joseph says. He calls it evil. He doesn't say, hey, you guys, I, you, know, you kind of did kind of a goofy thing there for me. What's he say? You meant evil. I'm not downplaying what you did. You did evil. But God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. You did an evil. You will be held accountable for that evil. I'm not going to exact the evil upon you right now because God meant what you did for good, the saving of many lives. Okay, let's talk about David. He was the true king of Israel, right? Anointed. But he was on the run from Saul for many years. And there were many opportunities where David could have killed Saul. Remember, in the, remember when Saul was <laughs> taking care of business in the cave and, and David goes up and cuts the corner of his cloak and comes back and his men's like why didn't you kill him it was a perfect opportunity he's, he's like vulnerable in a cave by himself you could have you could have killed Saul taken the throne that was rightfully yours David you're the true king and what does David say in 1 Samuel 24 5-7 afterwards David's heart struck him because he'd cut off a corner of Saul's robe he said to his men the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord the Lord's anointed to put out my hand against him seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. David was struck. David was a man after God's own heart, and he knew that I could rightfully go in there and I could kill Saul because I'm the rightful king. But instead, he exercised restraint. Now, was David a wimp? If you kill Goliath, you're not a wimp. If you kill wild animals out when you're tending sheep you're not a wimp and you're i mean he's a mighty man okay let's think about moses oh moses he had three million people to deal with for 40 years that complained was he a wimp no he he confronted pharaoh head-on if there ever was a man's man in the bible i think it was probably moses i mean how could you live in the wilderness for 40 years with that many people I mean, he was a military general. He was a powerful leader. He was a little hot-tempered at times. But what does Numbers 12.3 say about Moses? Now, the man, Moses, was very meek, more than all the people who were on the face of the earth. Interesting. We never see Moses trying to do a power grab. Moses was the meekest man to ever live, according to the Old Testament. Now, you may think to yourself at this point, 
being gentle is not natural. And I'm going to say, amen, praise the Lord, hallelujah. It's not natural. That's why it's one of the fruit of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit has to give you the gentleness. The Holy Spirit has to work that in you. It can't be generated by yourself because naturally we want to retaliate. Naturally we want to get even. Naturally we want to fight for our rights. So gentleness is something that the Holy Spirit has to get into our hearts. Paul tells Titus in Titus 3, 1 through 12, I mean 1 through 2, Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. And then Zephaniah 2, 3, Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land who do this just commands. Seek righteousness and humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. Seek humility. Seek gentleness. So what is gentleness? It's in, it's in two directions. One, you're gentle towards the Lord. You're quietly submitting to the Lord's will for your life. And you're exercising power under restraint with other people by not retaliating, not um, lashing out. You're forgiving. You're humble. You're restoring. You're aiming for restoration. That is gentleness. Okay. Any questions on gentleness? It's not weakness, but it's power under restraint. All right, you guys ready to talk about self-control? The last one? All right, let's go back to Galatians. And let's, let's just, we haven't, we haven't gotten our bearings straight up. We, we've just looked at the fruit of the Spirit passages but let's go back, and this was many, many weeks ago before we actually got to the fruit of the Spirit. We talked about the works of the flesh. The works of the flesh are in direct opposition to the fruit of the Spirit. Let's look at Galatians 5.19. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warned you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do those works of the flesh sound like people that are self-controlled? Or does it sound like the exact opposite? The works of the flesh that are listed there are really acts of sin that people commit sometimes with extreme self-indulgence. Now, if you've been paying attention every week when we start a new aspect of the fruit of the Spirit, what do we always start with? Where do we see this characteristic of God in the Old Testament? Where do we see God's love? Where do we see God's faithfulness? Where do we see God's um, goodness? Where do we see God's patience and kindness? Okay. We can't find any examples of God exercising self-control in the Bible. And the question is, why not? Why does God not exercise self-control? 
or why does God need? Here's the point. God is holy and perfect and never acts out of control or never acts in sinfulness. God doesn't have to control himself because if he had to control himself, that means that somehow he's out of control or he has to curb some type of sinful desire in him. And we know God can't do that. 1 John 1.5, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Now you can say God shows restraint. God shows patience. But self-control means I'm purposely making the decision to control myself from sinning. Can God do that? If you say yes, then you, mean that, then you can say there's a possibility that God can sin. And God can't do that. So what is self-control? It's controlling yourself, right? What is self-control? First of all, what's control? What's being under control? Not giving in to the works of the flesh. Why is the word self put in front of that? Whose responsibility is it to control yourself? The devil made me do it. I was brought up in a bad home. It's my parents' fault. No, that's just the way I was born. Well, you don't understand my background. I'm a product of my environment. I'm just a victim. Do you hear that in our culture all the time? No self-responsibility for self-sin. We need to have self-control. And so what Peter says in 2 Peter 1, 5-9, he says, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith, and he gives a list here, with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. This is almost like Peter's list of the fruit of the Spirit in somewhat. And self-control is on the list. Okay, we're going to give two examples of self-control from the Old Testament. One a good example, one a bad example. Okay. Let's start with a good example. We're going to go back to Joseph again. Okay? Not only did Joseph demonstrate gentleness, as a matter of fact, probably one of the one characters in the Old Testament that doesn't have a lot of sinful attributes or a lot of negative things to say about him is Joseph. He's almost like the Christ figure. But there came a time where he was sold into slavery. Let's go to Genesis 39. And he's put in charge of a man named Potiphar's house. And he has to deal with Potiphar's wife. We don't know what her name is. We just know that she's Potiphar's wife. Genesis 39. Now, I love the story because it kind of gives a lot of details that are, that are kind of interesting. All right, let's start in verse 2. I'm just going to read verse 2 and then skip down to verse, verse 6. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man. 
He was in the house of his Egyptian master. Now, what does it say in verse 2? The Lord was with Joseph. The Lord's hand was on Joseph. Joseph walked with the Lord. That's important. He He had a personal relationship with the Lord, and that gives us an idea about how he was able to exercise self-control. Now, let's go down to um, the middle of verse 6. Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. The Hebrew, he was a stud. Okay, He was well-built and handsome. After a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. Now, let me just stop right there. That's a pretty good translation. It's a safe, clean translation. In the Hebrew, it's very crude. You can probably fill in the gaps. It's a very crude gesture that she says to him. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of my master, he has no concern about anything in the house. He's put everything that he has in my charge. He's not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you're his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her, or even to be with her. But one day when he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house was there in the house, she caught him by his garment saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. Did Joseph exercise self-control? Now let's think about this for a moment. Potiphar was a powerful man in Egypt. He was like the head of the secret service. He was like the head of the, of the guard. And his wife probably got whatever she wanted. Do you ever think if she came up to somebody and said, lie with me, that she got her way? Had anybody really ever said no to this lady? She's used to getting her way. And she keeps badgering Joseph, saying, I mean, it says there, day after day, she would, she would make advances at him. Day after day, she said, let's have sex. Day after day, this kept coming to him. And what does he say to her? Look at verse... Nine. He is not greater in the house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this? What does he say? Great wickedness and sin against God. What does he say to her? I can't sleep with you because it would be a great wickedness, not only against your husband, not only against you, but against God. So he fled. Now, if you read the rest of the story, she accuses him of rape falsely, and he gets put in prison. So he pays the price for doing the right thing. But what could he have said in that moment when she came to him? I am a young stud, and I've been in prison for a long time, and there's no women in that prison, and there's nobody in the house. I'm a lonely, young, virile man, and I need my sexual needs met. Let's do it. Or he could have said, you know what? I'm from a dysfunctional family. My dad, Jacob, he was kind of a sexual pervert. My brother, Judah, he was kind of a sexual pervert. I can't help it. That's just the way I can. That's just who my family is. Let me just do what my family does. 
Or he could have said, you know what, this might help me move up the ladder. If I have sex with her, I may move up the food chain and get to a better position. So this may help me out in the long run. I may make a powerful ally with this woman and get out of slavery. Or he could say, Lord, please take this desire away from me. If you don't want me to have sex, give me a sign. <laughs> if I don't feel a tingling in my, in my heart, that means you've, you've kind of like said it's okay. Just help me, stop me in this moment. What's the, what does Joseph do? He does two things. He calls it sin and he flees. He calls it sin and he flees. And notice what it says there. Verse 10. As she spoke to Joseph day after day. We don't know how many days this went. Day after day. He would not listen to her, to lie beside her, or even to be with her. He, he kept his distance. He tried to avoid her at all costs. One day, it just so happens, none of the servants are in the house. Gee, I wonder how convenient that was. She probably said, servants, go out there and, and do something. And so she set, up, he, she set him up to be all alone. Nobody ever says no to me. I'm Potiphar's wife. And Joseph said, I've told you time and time again. I'm not going to do it. So what does he do? He flees. What does Paul tell us in 1 Corinthians 6, 18 through 20? Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You're not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Flee. That's what Joseph did. 2 Timothy 2.22. 2 Timothy 2.22. Okay. Flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. He doesn't argue with her. He doesn't stay around. He gets out of there as fast as he can. So Joseph is a man who had self-control. And the question you have to ask is why? Go back to verse 2. The Lord was with him. The Lord was with him. Now, go to the very end of the chapter, verse 23. He's been thrown in prison now. He's been falsely charged. He's been thrown in prison. Potiphar comes home and his wife says, You know what Joseph did? He tried to rape me and I have his garment here to prove it. And Potiphar gets upset and says, Nobody treats my wife that way. Send him to prison. Okay, verse 23. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. How does the chapter start? The Lord was with him. How does the chapter end? The Lord was with him. Sandwiched in the middle is this story about how Joseph flees. How can Joseph exercise self-control? The Lord was with him. He had a personal, strong, dynamic relationship with the Lord where he knew what sin was. He exercised self-control. That's the positive example. Now, let's go to the negative example. David with Bathsheba in 2 Samuel 11. So, this is David's worst moment. Even though he was a man after God's own heart, this was a major issue. 2 Samuel chapter 11.
And it's interesting. Remember what Joseph said back in Genesis 39? I know we were just there, but and I know you're turning to, how can I do such a wicked thing? How can I do such a wicked thing and sin against my God? Okay, let's read. Just remember that. Wicked thing, the thing. How can I do this thing? Okay, 2 Samuel 11. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is not not Bathsheba the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. Oh no. What's David going to do? I got a married woman pregnant. So, I'm kind of paraphrasing here. We've got to make it look like her husband got her pregnant and not me. So here's the plan. Verse 6. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go into his house. Okay, so what what does David say? Hey, let's take a break from war. Go home to your house. Go into your wife. Enjoy your wife. And what does Uriah do? I can't go in there and enjoy my wife and all my soldier buddies are out here, so I'll just sleep on the floor outside the door. And David's like, darn it. That one didn't work. So let's go, to, let's go to plan number two. I'm not sure if David said darn it. Um, okay. Um, verse 10. When they told David Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, Remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank, so that he made him drunk. And in the evening, he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. So what's plan number two? I'm going to get him drunk. And maybe in a drunken stupor, he will go in and lie with his wife. Now think about this. Okay, think about this. Uriah has more self-control as a drunk man than David did as a sober man when it came to Bathsheba. David's like, okay, plan number one didn't work. Plan number two doesn't work. I'm panicking now because she's going to start showing. So let's get rid of Uriah. Notice how it went from go sleep with your wife. I'm going to get you drunk to go sleep with your wife to I'm going to have you killed on the battlefield. Just get you out of the way. I mean, it went that quick. 
So let's, let's look at verse 14. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab. Now remember, Joab's the general of David's army. And sent it by the hand of Uriah. And the letter he wrote said Uriah and the... Interesting. Stop right there. I never caught this before when I read this. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. <laughs> okay. What could have Uriah done? He could have opened the note and said, Ooh, wait, wait a minute. I'm going to get killed here. Maybe I'll hide the note or write a a different road and give it to... He's a noble man even all the way to the end. He knows the king wrote it. The king signed it. I'm not going to mess with it. I was just told to give the note to to, to Joab. What's his death sentence? He's carrying the death sentence back to the general. Doesn't even know it's in his own hand. All right, verse 15. In the letter he wrote, Said Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting, and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab. And some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting. So it wasn't like direct murder. We have to make it look realistic here. So we'll put Uriah at the very front. And we'll have him in the heat of battle. And instead of coming and helping him and flanking him, we'll just kind of pull back to where he has no chance. And then he'll die in battle, and it'll look like it was just a death. And we'll go home and tell Bathsheba that her husband's dead. And um, I don't know what David's gaining by any of this stuff. So, so David goes home and goes to bed. What do you think he's thinking? And I got away with it. But nine months is going to come. And there's a, there's, a, there's a friend, there's a prophet named Nathan. And um, in chapter 12, Nathan comes to David and says, you've sinned. Now, I want you to go to the very end. Look at verse 27, the end of chapter 11. When the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, that's Bathsheba, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. The thing. What's the thing that David did that displeased the Lord? You may say, well, what's the thing? The thing. And why does he call it a thing? Actually, David committed a lot of sins in this one big thing. So what sins did David actually commit in the thing? Well, let's, let's start. First of all, he lusted after Bathsheba. He broke the commandment of coveting his neighbor's wife. Before he even went and got her, what did he do? He looked down and saw her bathing. He lusted after her. And he said, I want her. So he coveted. Second, David actually stole Uriah's wife. He was a thief. He broke the commandment of stealing. Was it his right to have her? She's a married woman. So he stole her. Okay, the third one is obvious. He actually committed adultery. Okay, fourth, he lied about it, tried to cover it up by sending Uriah home to spend time with his wife so it would look like he was the real father. Fifth, David got Uriah drunk, made him stumble. Six, although he didn't have his hand on the trigger per se, David ordered the death of Uriah on the battlefield so it would, quote, look like he died in battle, although he ordered Joab to pull back the troops. 
In the course of a few days, David was lustful, covetous, lying, thieving, adulterer, murderer. And what does it say? The thing. The one big thing that David did was evil. It displeased the Lord. So, did David exercise self-control in that moment? Okay, let's think about, let's compare Joseph to David. Okay, they're, they're similar, but they're different. Who's the aggressor in Joseph's story? Bathsheba. I mean, the temptation is really tough. She's coming at him, she's coming at him, she's coming at him, she's coming at him. And what does he do? Resist, 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 flees. Over time, over time, over time. David just, one, one afternoon he's out there. I'm going to go out and get on my roof and kind of see what's going on. He looks down and what does he see? Just, was, was he expecting it? Was he seeking after it? Was, she, was Bathsheba knocking on his door every day coming to him? No, it was a glance. It was a glance. What should he have done when he saw her bathing? He should have said what Joseph said. How can I do such a wicked thing and displease my Lord? I'm going to flee and go back inside and try to do something different. What does he do? Just one time he saw her. It wasn't like she was coming after him, coming after him like Potiphar's wife was to Joseph. Joseph fled in the midst of extreme pressure over and over and over again. David, in one glance, ends up committing a lot of sins. All the way to murder. Now, let me just ask you a question. This is where it gets theologically difficult. What's the punishment for adultery and murder according to the Old Testament law of Moses? Stoning to death. Why wasn't David stoned to death and pay for his sins? What's the answer? He, w- he was anointed in the lineage of Judah to be the king, and ultimately Jesus would come from David. Now, you may think to yourself, that's not really fair, is it? How come David gets away with being punished just because he's the king? Because technically, what did David deserve? Death. Now, what I want you to do is I want you to go to Psalm 51. This is not in your notes, but it just popped into my head. Sometimes that happens. Am I allowed to have things pop into my head and go on money trails? Sure, Sean, you have the microphone. Who's stopping you? Psalm, yeah, the child died, and then she conceived again and had Solomon. Yeah. And then Nathan the prophet really comes to David and says, because you've done this, you're going to have... David did suffer. He didn't suffer death, but he suffered the consequences of a dysfunctional family the rest of his life. Nathan said, from this point forward, the sword's never going to leave your family. And you read the rest of the, the life of David, and there's dysfunction. There's... I mean, yeah, like brother-sister rape type stuff going on. David was supposed to be out to battle. And the question is, why weren't you out to battle, David? 
I don't know if it was a sin that he didn't go out, but it was probably not wise leadership. Like, who knows what David's doing? He could have just thought, hey, I'm the king. I can do whatever I want. If I want to stay home and watch TV and kind of, you know, see what's on Netflix and walk out on my porch and kind of check out what's going on, I can do that. Okay, what does your superscript, your uninspired superscript say on Psalm 51? To the choir master, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. So you have a historical description of this psalm, okay? So how does David respond to getting caught? Does he say, I'm the king and I can do whatever I want? Get out of my face, Nathan? No, he's broken. That's why he's a man after God's own heart. Even though he sinned big time, the difference with David is he repented. He was truly, truly sorrowful. He knew what he did was wrong, and he confessed it, and he admitted it, and he sought the Lord. And so that's part of what self-control is. Let's say that you don't exercise self-control and you give in to sin, and you're confronted with it or you have to deal with it. How do you deal with being confronted in sin? I deserve to do what I did. I had the right to do what I did. You don't have any right to tell me what to do. Or do you... Or do you show repentance and brokenness and contrition? Listen to David. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. He uses three words there for sin. Transgression means to trespass. Did he trespass and take what was not his? The word iniquity there means perversion. Or corruption. And the word sin there was like a bow and arrow when you missed the mark. He uses three Hebrew words there for sin. Verse 3, I know my transgressions, my sins ever before me. Against you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now, just stop right there, David. Against you, God, only have I sinned? Well, who did he sin against? Uriah, Bathsheba, and Bathsheba's dad. He's mentioned in there. Now, obviously, he sinned personally against those people, but ultimately, when you sin against people, who are you ultimately sinning against? God. And then you go down to um, verse 10. This is kind of where you're probably familiar with it. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing heart. Notice what he says, restore to me the joy of my salvation. He doesn't say, I lost my salvation and now I need to get it back. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. What happens when you sin? You lose that joy. Don't lose your salvation, but you lose that joy. So we see in David a man who in a moment of weakness did not exercise self-control. Joseph, on the other hand, who experienced pounding time after time, you know, sexual temptation, was able to flee. So let's talk about self-control, especially when it comes to the tongue. 
we may not commit sexual sins, we may not commit adultery, we may not do all these crazy things that we see David and these Old Testament guys doing at times, but how often do we lack self-control with the mouth in what we say? James 3, 3 through 10. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they're so large and are driven by strong winds, they're guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. The tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea and creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the image and the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and curses. My brothers, these things ought not to be. What's his point? As powerful as a horse is, we can tame it with a bit. As huge as a ship is, a tiny rudder, you know, you turn the wheel, it can churn this big ship. As small as the tongue is compared to the whole body, you can't control the tongue. It's like a fire. So part of exercising self-control is asking the Holy Spirit to help control our tongues. Now, Titus 2, 2 through 8. Timothy, or Ty, Paul gives instructions to Titus about different age groups in the church. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and steadfastness. Older women are likewise to be reverent in behavior, not slanders or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so to train young women to love their husbands and children. To be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respect to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Okay, Older men, be self-controlled. Older women, be self-controlled. Older women teach the younger women to be self-controlled. Older men teach the younger men to be self-controlled. So who needs self-control in the church? (laughs) Everybody. Whose burden is it upon to model it and to show it to the younger generation? Those that are older. You would think as you get older and wiser and more mature, you would have more self-control. That's kind of the way it's supposed to be. When you think about youth... What's one of the definitions of youth or young people? What do we often say? They are so immature. They lack control. They the, Should you, as an older, wiser Christian, should the same things be said about you that are said about a teenager? Hopefully not, because you've learned over the years to be wise. So, let's go back to Galatians chapter 5. Because we've, we've reached the end of the list. 
And let's just read this like we were reading it for the very first time. And let these, these, these things sink into our hearts. So go back to Galatians 5.22. But the fruit of the Spirit is... Now, question, how many... Fruit is what? Is that in singular or plural? Singular, the fruit. The fruit of the Spirit. It's one fruit with nine aspects. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such thing there's no law. Okay. Let's just recap. Love. Why is love first? Love's always first on Paul's list. It's the fountain from everything. It's that unconditional, agape, selfless love that we show others in concrete action. What is joy? Joy is that deep-seated sense of contentment that we have, that God is sovereign, and it doesn't, it's not based upon circumstances. Circumstances can be bad. It doesn't fluctuate, but we have that deep sense of contentment in God's sovereignty no matter what the circumstance. That's what joy is. What's peace? Peace is being at peace with God because you've been saved. You're no longer at war with God. And it's the peace of God that rules in your hearts that gives you that sense of, of calm and, and you're not anxious. What's patience? Being able to endure trials and temptations and, and situations and people that try your patience. What's kindness? It's usually tied to generosity. It's being merciful. Goodness being a person of integrity, faithfulness, you persevere to the end, you stay strong in your faith, gentleness, it's not weakness, but it's power under restraint, it's not retaliating, self-control, it's being willing to flee, sin, say no to sin, and live a life that is pleasing to God. So, what I want you to do is you look at that list Think about which one on there you struggle with the most or you don't display as often as you should. And what you should do then, you should pray for all of these because it's holistic. You need all of these in your life. But my challenge maybe for you tonight is if there's that one area that you really struggle with or you need to grow in, Let's spend some time in prayer asking God through the power of the Holy Spirit to grow that, to cultivate, to, to birth that in you on a consistent basis. Because you can't produce it. It's got to be the Holy Spirit that does it. But you can sure pray for it. You can ask the Holy Spirit to do that. And so that would be my challenge to you tonight. All right. Are there any questions in the last few moments that we have together? What's next? We're not done. Next week we're off. We come back and we're actually going to finish up um, verses 24 and 25 and 26. Okay, because we're going to finish this whole section. So we've got one more through the Spirit, which would be December 1st. No, what's December 3rd? Whatever the, whatever that, the, the, the 3rd. Okay. Then the 10th. 
I think is our last Wednesday night. So we'll probably just do a standalone lesson that night on something. I'm not sure. That's too far away for me to think about. But we're going to finish this entire passage and do like a recap. So, but not next week because we're, we're off next week. And then next, yes, Dennis. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, th- that's a good that's a good point, Dennis. I don't know if you heard what he said. He said like, when David was in the cave and he didn't and he cut off Saul's garment and he got real bothered by that. Earlier in David's life, it seems like he had a closer relationship with the Lord, and you know why? Go back and read it and watch this. The reason why David had a closer relationship with the Lord at times was because he surrounded himself with counselors, godly men. As he got older in life, and as he, as he went off, as, as his, these men went off to war, when David was on the roof, who was around him? He was by himself. When David sins, he's by himself. When David thrives, he's surrounded by counselors. What's the lesson for us? We need Christian brothers and sisters around us to encourage us and help us to remain faithful. We can't do it alone. I would submit this to you. The times that you fall into sin are probably when you're alone, when you're bored, when you're restless, and maybe when you're, maybe when you're hungry. I mean, just think about that. When you're alone, when you're bored, when you're restless, when maybe you're hungry or tired, you tend to fall into sin. When you're busy, when you're active, when you're serving, when you're around others, when you're productive, you don't have time to fall into major sin. David had time. All his friends left, all his buddies left, he was up there by himself. Now, that's not an excuse for what he did, but later on in life, he kind of just rested on his laurels and said, I can kind of do what I want to do. Anything else? You guys are smiling at me like that means it must be time to go. So I want us to spend just a few moments in prayer, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna, let's have some silent prayer first. I want you to pray through that list of the fruit of the Spirit, and ask the Lord to convict you, produce in you, reveal to you, whichever. Maybe there's just one particular that sticks out to you that I really, like after the study over these past few weeks, that I really, maybe if you've seen tonight, it's like self-control or gentleness or whatever. Let's just have a moment of silent prayer, then I'll close us. Lord, I know if we're honest with ourselves, we probably could list every single one of these on this list of the fruit of the Spirit that we struggle with, that we fall short of, that we don't see consistently in our lives. And that's why we need you, Holy Spirit. And so my prayer tonight is that all of us would seek your face, Lord. Whatever area of weakness that we have seen, that you would grow that in us, you would cultivate that, you would give us opportunities to demonstrate that, to display that, to be consistent in that. We need grace to be able to do that. We can't do that in our own power. We need your power, Holy Spirit. So we rely upon you. Jesus, we trust you. We know that even when we fail, and we will, there's forgiveness. 
Just like David, he confessed his sin, he owned up to his sin, and he found in you um, that, that grace, that mercy, that forgiveness. So Lord, help us to have that attitude as well. Lord, bless our time this next week as we, as we get ready for Thanksgiving. And Lord, we continue to pray for the, the spread of COVID in our, in our county, Lord. I just pray that it would dissipate. It would, it would, it would, I know the virus won't go away, but Lord, would you, um, would you stamp it out or would you s- slow it down or would you protect our, our community, Lord? In whatever way that would be, Lord, we just, just pray for your will to be done. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.